Please join me in a prayer for God to illuminate our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first reading this morning comes from the prophet Hosea, chapter 6. Listen now to God's word for us. Come, let us return to the Lord. For it is he who has torn, and he who will heal us. He has struck down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His appearing is as sure as as the dawn. He will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you? O Ephraim, what shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, I have killed them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We continue in the Gospel of Matthew, where we've been throughout this fall. Last week we were in Matthew chapter 8, we, we step into chapter 9 today, though both, both chapters 8 and 9 are, are filled with healing stories of Jesus. And amidst a number of different healings comes this story from chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and, and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, for the patch pulls away from the cloak, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, otherwise the skin bursts and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of years ago, when I started taking piano lessons, my piano teacher took one of the lessons to show me some of the basics about learning music by ear and not simply playing from uh, the sheet music. And at one point, he had me put three fingers on the piano just so to play an E minor chord. And then he would say, now keep two of your fingers on the very same keys and move just this one finger a half step up. 
to make a C chord. It's almost no distance at all between where my finger was and the next key where he now wanted me to go, a minor chord to a major chord. In many ways, this morning's passage is about minor chord faithfulness and major chord faithfulness and the incredibly thin distance between the two. Our passage, you heard, begins with the disciples of John the Baptist arriving to Jesus and his disciples who are seated eating and drinking as they've been doing a lot of recently with Jesus. These disciples of John the Baptist aren't the arrogant religious leaders or hypocritical Pharisees that we encounter a lot of in Matthew's gospel. These are, the same, these are the followers of the same John the Baptist who baptized Jesus and said, I am not worthy even to tie the sandals of, of him. Most commentators agree these disciples of John the Baptist, much like John the Baptist himself, they respect Jesus. And so when they come to Jesus, they are posing a genuine searching question of him. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not? By Jesus' time, there are all kinds of historical records that show that fasting from food had, had moved from a period of time where you might fast for the occasional season of intense grief or repentance. It had moved from this occasional thing to something done regularly, often, as John's disciples put it. Fasting had become a bi-weekly form of sacrificial worship, of dutiful faithfulness, of self-denial. Of course, inherent to the practice of fasting is hungering. It's a practice of longing, a practice of aching. It's what you could call minor chord faithfulness. And as my piano teacher used to ask when I played an E minor chord, do you hear how that sound wants to resolve? The chord is not settled in the ear. It wants to go somewhere. There's a dissonance. The ear picks up and you can tell this chord it wants to resolve. Now, Western music theory is far more complex and nuanced than what I'm about to say. But at this basic introductory level, he was showing me that the E minor chord, the chord with a measure of audible dissonance, it wants to resolve onto a major chord. Inherent to a minor chord sound is its incompleteness. It's not there yet. Jesus, we are minor chord faithful people, is what John's disciples are saying. Fasting, sacrificial, dutiful, self-denying, regularly giving ourselves over to longing and aching because we know how incomplete we are, how incomplete this world is. Why do not your disciples play minor chords? Perhaps we expect Jesus to respond, well, because with me, everything is always joyful and good and lovely, and so life is one big major progression to the next. Jesus offers a far more nuanced response in his one-sentence parable reply. The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom's with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. You heard Jesus doesn't discount minor chord faithfulness has its time. He makes it clear that in, in his response that his death will be a time of mourning, of fasting, of aching. 
And then just a little earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a whole section of teaching that begins not if you fast, but when you fast. Jesus recognizes there are times of great grief and repentance, times where we wonder why God let something happen, where we very much wonder if God is at work at all. And we cry out, or we pray psalms of lament, or maybe we fast. Absolutely, there are times in our lives to play forth with a minor chord faithfulness because there is an unresolved ache. Jesus also makes clear in his response to John's disciples, but right now, in this moment, we're at a wedding. I'm the bridegroom. Who plays minor chords at weddings? Certainly weddings in Jesus' time and our time are quite different on a number of fronts, but, but both paradigms most definitely recognize weddings as occasions of supreme joy. One of the ways we accent the festive joy of the occasion in our time is, is just the music chosen at the reception. Think about the kind of songs that usually get played as everyone is starting to get around the dance floor. September, single ladies, Uptown Funk, I want to dance with somebody, twist and shout. You have a few others running through your head. Common denominator, most of each of these songs live in major chord progressions. The rhythm, the tempo, the chords, they exude the celebrative joy of the occasion. And indeed, there are times where Jesus is so obviously and abundantly present. He acts or he breathes upon our lives or the life of the church in ways that amaze us or fill us, inspire us, humble us, move us. And when Jesus is wonderfully present, he makes it clear in our passage that we call it what it is, a wedding. The joy of love with us. And so we respond with joy, thankful prayer, song, dance, food, and fellowship, testimonies, gratitude shown forth in a multitude of ways. The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom's with them, can they? Days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. As we scan our lives, as we scan the church, is it a minor chord season or a major chord season? Is Jesus painfully absent or distant or indiscernible or sublimely full and present? Is it a season to mourn and ache or dance and sing? Perhaps the Apostle Paul provides the guidance we need. At one point, he writes from the chains of prison himself to a congregation in Philippi, facing threat of persecution and facing significant internal division. And near the end of his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul has one of the more famous paragraphs in Scripture, uh, really in all the Bible. It begins this way. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Major chord faithfulness. What do you mean, Paul? There's actually a lot of wrong going on. And then Paul continues with what I think is the most important four words of that famous paragraph. The Lord is near. Because Jesus rose from the grave, his spirit lives now and forever. And so Paul assumes as fact 
that the bridegroom is always with us, always near. Jesus himself declares at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, I am with you always. Making it clear that we're always in some sense in attendance at a wedding. If for no other reason than that the bridegroom is among us. And yet Paul finds he needs to exhort the church, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice because he knows he's writing to a people currently aching in a minor chord reality. They face threat of persecution from without and continued fracture and division from within. It's like my piano teacher. Paul wants to come right alongside the the church and say, and now do you see this key right here? It is but the thinnest of spaces away from where you are right now. And if you can find the adjacent key right there, the entire song shifts. Can can you see the Lord is near? Now to say the bridegroom is always near does not discount that in this lifetime there are plenty of times where we have difficulty seeing him or hearing him or trusting him or knowing his power. It is to declare, however, that when it comes to walking with Jesus, the melody of life's song always eventually resolves unto joy somehow. And it is to declare that often when it comes to Jesus, some of the notes that were central to the minor chord ache are also central to the minor major chord joy. Did not Jesus' resurrected body have scars? Can we imagine some of the minor notes of our lives right now being not peripheral but actually central to the new song, Jesus' birthing? I should add, my piano teacher taught me one basic fundamental in all of this minor and major chord exploration. Actually, he never stopped teaching me this fundamental because I was terrible at it. It was my posture. Time and again, he would stand beside me and lightly press my shoulders down while I was playing. Or he just stopped the playing altogether and looked at me and said, okay, you have got to stop hunching your shoulders and pounding the keyboard like hammer. Relax. A tense body, rigid fingers, they can only ever play notes. A relaxed body, loose fingers, these bring forth music. And for me, that helps to understand the last portion of Jesus' teaching in today's passages, which at first glance seems to have nothing to do with Jesus' bridegroom insights about fasting and joy. Jesus ends this little section saying, new wine is not put into old wineskins. Otherwise, the, the skin would burst and the wine is spilt and the skins are destroyed. But no, new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Old wineskins grow hard, rigid, brittle new wine it's still fermenting it's still growing so it goes into these old skins and just it bursts you need new wine skins new containers that have a softness to them a flexibility to them new wine skins can hold new wine because they can expand and grow with the still fermenting wine so let's see if we can put this all together i think jesus longs for the church to see afresh how near The bridegroom is. 
how faithful he is, how good a thing he is doing in us and around us. Often even using some of the very same notes from the minor chord pain to draw forth a major chord joy. But look, the new and the good and the beautiful thing Jesus is birthing, that kind of thing's fresh wine. In, in the same way that music can never really find expression through a stressed, brittle, uptight body, new wine cannot find a home where there is rigid stress or bitterness, where there is uptight anxiety or cynicism in the body. I wonder if that's why the Apostle Paul, when he writes that famous paragraph that begins, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, and then he, he says the Lord is near. I wonder if that isn't why he ends that famous paragraph with this. Church, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Can you hear Paul exhorting the church to relax the shoulders and loosen the fingers so that they might receive the gift? And can you hear the invitation of the Holy Spirit for us this morning? Now keep your two fingers on the very same keys that make for the minor chord. And, and can you just move this one up a half a step? And as you discern this invitation, can you sense at the same time the Holy Spirit softening our shoulders, loosening our fingers, that we might actually be able to, to receive this new song, play this new song, in fact, overflow with this new song. Amen. <laughs>